Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 12th of November 2013 and it is my great privilege to be able to welcome to the programme the Canadian journalist Barry Zwicker who is an independent documentary film producer, writer and political activist who has worked in journalism for over 60 years, both in Canada and in the US, writing in many high-profile newspapers and appearing as a media critic on national television. And amongst TV journalists, he was indeed the first in the world to go on national television in any country to question, in a probing way, the official story about 9-11, which led him to produce two highly influential documentary films on the subject, The Great Deception in 2002 and The Great Conspiracy in 2004, in which year he also became a director of the International Citizens' Inquiry into 9-11 Phase 2 at the University of Toronto. And in 2006, he published a book on the subject of 9-11, Towers of Deception. So may I say, Barry Zwicker, thank you ever so much indeed for agreeing to join us on the programme. It's a pleasure. Now, I was keen to talk to you because... I know that over the years in your work as a media critic, you've taken a great deal of interest in the way that language is used and manipulated in the media and how it then affects the way in which people think and interact in their everyday lives. And a particular example of this manipulation, of course, is the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist, which seems, I don't know whether you agree, but it seems to appear virtually everywhere in the media these days in a negative sense. And it's that that I'd like to ask you about particularly in this interview. But first, would you mind sharing with us just a little bit more about your background and your experience? Well, my background, as uh, you've said, Julian, is almost entirely in in journalism and communications. And uh, I began uh, many years ago in 1951, can you believe it, as a printer's devil, and that meant an apprentice to printers. Uh, This was in a small weekly newspaper in Russell, Manitoba, here in Canada. In the years since, I have been fortunate, I guess, to engage in many forms of journalism. First, the weeklies, where I was a printer, and then I graduated to become a columnist on uh, one of the Western Canadian weeklies. And uh, then uh, I did eventually go to journalism school and worked on dailies in Canada and the USA. The main one uh, that I was identified with was the Globe and Mail called Canada's National Newspaper. I was there for eight and a half years. And uh, subsequently, I went to the largest paper in Canada, the Toronto Star, and then began to freelance, which was an unusual thing to do when I started it, which was back in 1970. And I think it's just worth mentioning, because it's relevant to our topic today, Julian, Mm -hmm. that when I began freelancing, I became, therefore, independent. That meant that nobody could fire me. And I find that many of the persons who have come to, for instance, question, at least question the official narrative of the events of 9-11, tend to be independent in some way or form. This is a significant thing because most people I guess uh, most workers work for an organization, be it government, non-government, or private. And uh, the interests, uh, which include the interest in not being fired or not being demoted, enter in. So then uh, subsequently, uh, I I worked in radio and TV, and now I'm I'm a blogger. (laughs) 
Now, um, we've mentioned 9-11 a number of times, and uh, this is one of the things which we've touched on several times, really, with this podcast over the last 12 months that it's been in existence. And this is one of those subjects which people seem to be quite uncomfortable speaking about in everyday lives. And there are a number of subjects like this. And certainly it's my contention that one of the main reasons why people tend to be like this is because of the way that the media conditions all of us, really, in, to one degree or another, to self-censor our thoughts and our conversation. And I think that central to this is that term, as I said before, conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist. So I want to ask you if you could give us your view on how the media, particularly the mainstream media, tends to use this term and what effect it has on people. Well, you're entirely right, in my opinion, Julian. This is a highly significant part of speech conspiracy theorist. I think it, just to be sort of academically sound, if you will, there are two ways that the term conspiracy theorist can be spoken, uttered, or written, and uh, therefore two ways that it can be heard or apprehended or understood. The first way, which is very much in the minority, in a minority of cases, the term is used normatively meaning that there are events which are called conspiracies and people know that and virtually every day and uh, in every country in the world uh, people are charged with conspiracy conspiracy to commit fraud conspiracy to commit murder and so on so that in that sense the word conspiracy is known and relatively well understood Um, A conspiracy being where two or more people meet in secret to uh, plan uh, and maybe then go on to execute something that is not in the public interest, shall we say, is against the law usually. And then the other word, when the term conspiracy theorist is being used normatively, is theory. And again, people pretty well understand what a theory is. It's an idea about something can be totally scientific or just in everyday life. You have a theory about your neighbor, perhaps. And um, it's known that it's sort of a uh, stance that one takes unless and until further information that would change the theory comes to light. So if we have a theory about our neighbor, that the neighbor is dealing in drugs, and then later on we find out that the neighbor's on medication, and somebody's coming from the pharmacy with legitimate medication, then we can remove the theory that the neighbor is a drug dealer and replace it with the superior theory based on better or more evidence that the neighbor is ill and requires these medications. So that's the normative. Hmm. It's usually used in a subjective way as a put-down, and it's a most serious put-down, which is one reason that the CIA they didn't quite invent it. They adopted it. The term apparently was first used around 1920 by a writer. But the CIA discovered it and found it was very useful to apply to anybody who questioned the findings of the Warren Commission in connection with the assassination of JFK. So in this non-normative form, to call someone a conspiracy theorist or even worse, a conspiracy nut or a wacko or wear, uh, someone who wears a tinfoil hat. There's a certain tone of voice that goes with that. There's the rolling of the eyes and so on. And it's, it's very powerful 
as an emotional propagandistic put-down, whether it's in a private conversation or whether it's used in the mainstream media, orally or in, or in print. And the implication, the strong implication behind the application of this label to an individual or to an organization is, in the worst case, that the individual or organization is actually mentally unbalanced that this person is deluded, is living in a fantasy world, and is all mixed up. In other words, is insane. Now, this is one of the greatest fears human beings have, is of becoming insane. And it's a legitimate fear. I mean, who of us wants to lose our mind? I mean, we may have a few drinks. We want to lose a little part of our mind, lose a couple of inhibitions. <laughs> but I mean, to become mentally unstable is extremely uncomfortable, or much worse and we all know paranoia, depression, and so on, no one wants to be seen as suffering from those. And so if it's implied that one is so mentally disturbed, it's a powerful thought stopper. Mm. It's where the person can be pretty well rendered into a deer in the headlights and stops talking, stops even thinking what he had previously or she had previously been talking or thinking about. So would you say that therefore this phrase in that sense has become a substitute really for words such as insane? Yes, I'd say it's, mm. it's a synonym uh, for you're crazy, you're nuts. It's just a straight out synonym for that charge, if you will. Yes. And do you think it has a kind of direct effect so instead of somebody hearing that word spoken to them and then thinking about the implications of it rather it's a kind of speech act that is a signal for people to respond oh i'm being told that i'm insane here and then they react immediately yes it's instantaneous the reaction because it's i mean language is of course uh, something we could talk about for days months years so there's an emotive content to a lot of language there are concepts embedded within words the effect of language takes place in milliseconds. It's almost beyond our conscious ability. There's so many examples, but one example I remember hearing in Marshall McLuhan's class is that if there's a hunting party out in the forest and one of the members of the party shouts, bear, immediately that person becomes the leader of the party in the sense that knowledge is power. That person has spotted a bear. Everyone looks to him or her uh, for further information. That is how instantaneous language can be in relationships. And so people normally don't want to be shunned or avoided. And uh, this goes very deep into the human psyche. And uh, we know what it feels like, each of us, to be alienated in some way or another. Maybe we're alienated from part of our family or whatever. And so when someone calls us a conspiracy theorist, uh, we are being tarred with a very, very toxic brush. And it should cause normally anybody around who, who sees that we're being tarred with this brush to just distance themselves from us to shun us and avoid us and there we're looking at one of the deepest fears that can exist in the human psyche because humans are social animals so it's hard to overestimate the damage and the power of this particular phrase as it's usually used as a thought-stopping put-down of the worst kind and it's used in connection interestingly it's used very politically 
in connection with, for instance, 9-11 or the execution of JFK or with other uh, false flag operations in history, such as the particular kind of false flag operation that Pearl Harbor was. I, I have, have a friend, a dear friend and colleague, around the time that we were mounting our international citizens inquiry into 9-11 that you mentioned in your intro in uh, May of 2004. He uh, was invited on to the biggest radio program here in Toronto, Canada, uh, the CBC station, which had reached the highest rating of all the stations in Toronto. And the um, host of the program, now retired, was American-born, but he had become a wonderful citizen of Canada, and he was very liberal, small-l liberal, very progressive, very thoughtful. And um, he invited my friend onto the program, this was unusual in itself, to discuss our inquiry in which we were positing that 9-11 was a false flag operation, was an inside job, was a terror fraud. So the host was willing to talk about that. But my friend made the mistake, if you will, <laughs> of fairly early on in the conversation, and I believe it was pre-taped for broadcast, of mentioning Pearl Harbor as an example. So the host, who held uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in awe, and, and I think rightly so, couldn't abide that. He just said, this interview is over. If you're going to say that Pearl Harbor uh, wasn't what we think it is, then we can't even continue this conversation. And uh, that, that uh, is an example of uh, how powerful some of these subjects are. Yeah, it seems to depend very much upon what your background beliefs are as to how you're going to react to these various claims, doesn't it? Very much so, and, and I believe that's a generalized and important truth. Uh, we all have a worldview at any given time. Usually we inherit it. We're born into a, a family and a subculture and a culture, and so there are certain facts, we think they're facts, historical facts, for instance, that we just take as being true. And unless for some reason we're introduced to questions, serious questions about these many, many things that we believe are true, we'll just go on believing them. And uh, some of them are, are very close to us emotionally. And they, these have to do with patriotism and nationalism and country and religion and so forth. So to change those, to question even those facts, which are sometimes shibboleths, they just ain't so, is extremely difficult. It's an ongoing challenge for the more thoughtful, the more knowledgeable, the more thinking, the more critical people of the world, wherever they are and whatever the subject area. And this is why people very often describe that process as going down the rabbit hole, don't they, where they, they find that there's some particular issue which is the trigger that makes them realise, oh, good heavens, I've perhaps been misunderstanding all sorts of things in my life, and then they start to investigate more things, and then they find, to use uh, Lewis Carroll's image there, that they're going down the rabbit hole finding all sorts of things are different to what they thought. Yes, and that is more than interesting because part of the power of the term conspiracy theorist is that as it's conventionally deployed as a psychological weapon, it will be claimed that the individual being tarred in this way with this toxic brush will be lumped in whatever it is that the person's questioning could be Pearl Harbor, 9-11, the uh, alleged use by the Assad regime in Syria of chemical weapons. And there's so many examples 
the tormentor will say, oh, so this is a person who believes, and they mm-hmm. proceed to name a number of uh, different categories, such as the Loch Ness Monster, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, that, that's, that's fascinating that you've uh, anticipated my next question, because I was going to exactly ask you exactly about that. And in one breath, somebody can say, so you're interested in questioning the assassination of JFK, but does that mean, therefore, you believe that there are shape-shifting aliens <laughs> secretly taking over the world? Exactly. <laughs> no, precisely, Julian. This is not far-fetched your example this is not far-fetched what we're conversing about here do you believe in bigfoot do you believe elvis is still alive and so forth and by the introduction of this sort of spectrum of questionable beliefs which are ascribed to the person being tormented there could be for instance uh, six different beliefs say elvis is alive (laughs) that there is a loch ness monster that there is an abominable snowman and then you throw in 9-11. Now, the first three, you know, we know are ridiculous. So by some sort of logical extension, therefore, one's belief that 9-11 was an inside job, mm-hmm. a terror fraud, is totally tarnished. And, and in fact, the person can be just generally dismissed as, quote, a nutcase, unquote, right there and then. This is a kind of guilt by association idea, isn't it? That would be the sort of the logical process going on, yes. Yes, but it does seem to be very, very powerful. I mean, I have been a number of newspaper articles that I've read where I've seen a, a paragraph which will have a number of the things that you've, well, not exactly the things that you've described, but that sort of thing going on. And as I read it, I do feel the power of that. And if it was directed against me, I would be very upset about it. So it must have quite an effect on people. Well, it does. No question. It has this ongoing power, and I don't foresee... I'm not seeing the term conspiracy theorist and its uh, varieties being used less, and I don't see its power diminishing. Now, maybe it is, and I hope it is, but I'm just not seeing the evidence that the power has diminished. The mainstream go on and on and on using it, and each use kind of uh, adds to its power, really. And uh, the way to um, strip it of its power is to understand it. Absolutely, yes, indeed. On this point, the whole reason, of course, for having this interview that I thought was very important that I should talk to you about this is because I know that many of my listeners will have the accusation, at least in their heads, um, that, oh dear, I fall into the category of this conspiracy theorist because of the very things that I'm listening to on various alternative media podcasts and the like. And I think it's very important that we have this kind of discussion now to tease apart what's going on, as you say, so that people can understand it and realise how this language is being manipulated. Now, you mentioned a few minutes ago that this term tends to be used as a thought stopper. And when you said that, I immediately thought, of course, of George Orwell and his book 1984. And I thought of the term crime stop that he talks about, particularly in chapter 17. And I just like, I've got the quote here in front of me. I just like to remind everybody of what the definition of crime stop is in 1984. Quote, crime stop means the faculty of stopping short as though by instinct at the threshold of any dangerous thought. 
It includes the power of not grasping analogies, of failing to perceive logical errors, of misunderstanding the simplest arguments if they're inimical to Ingsoc, and of being bored or repelled by any train of thought which is capable of leading in a heretical direction. Crime Stop, in short, means protective stupidity. I'm going to repeat that again. Crime Stop, in short, means protective stupidity. How much do you feel that that definition there by Orwell applies to the use of the term in the modern world? Well, I admire Orwell immensely, and his essay on politics and the English language is, of course, a, a seminal piece of work. I find it a little unfortunate that he uses the word stupidity, uh, because to me, normatively, stupidity is not an issue of morality. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, I think that that might be actually partly my fault, because I should have continued the quote. I'll do that, uh, because it might clear things up. But stupidity is not enough. On the contrary, orthodoxy in the full sense demands a control over one's own mental processes as complete as that of a contortionist over his body. So the picture there is less really, I mean, he seems to have defined stupidity in the sense of meaning control over how you're thinking in a negative way. That's slightly different, isn't it? It is slightly different, and I'm glad that you continued the quote, and I'm glad that that's what he wrote. There are so many ways of analyzing the ways that we think. The term, if you will, is software. Uh, Let's say that our brains functioning, the neurons and so on, are the hardware. Then the language we use, and of course the images, and there are images that are contained within language, not to mention concepts, which is another whole subject, There used to be this term, you don't hear it so often nowadays, about computerization, which is gigo, garbage in, garbage out. So you take a a fine mind, put a term like conspiracy theorist into it uh, without it being properly analyzed and understood, then the person, as it were, has sort of had a a gun or a grenade or a bomb or something implanted into his or her mind. And insofar as they then use it, they become, you know, a distributor of this damaging phrase, accidentally, uh, or at the worst, with complete uh, intention, use it as a weapon to stop other people's thoughts, to warn other people away from thinking these particular thoughts or exploring these particular avenues. As Marshall McLuhan has said, communication is not a matching process. It's a making process. When we use a term with one degree or another of knowingness, the hearer, and let's just really keep it simple and say there's just one other. Uh, You're speaking to someone and you use a term. That person is hearing the term and then using their own background, which we referred to earlier, everyone's born into a family, into a country, into a nation. Uh, That person then is decoding it on the fly. It happens in milliseconds, and it isn't done consciously in the sense that we usually use the term consciousness. When we think consciousness, most of us, most of the time, consider that there's some sort of a rational process, and we say, hmm, that person said that, now let me think about what the person meant. Let me think about that word. Well, these words all fly by far too fast for that, so that the damage is sort of done instantly before the hearer has had a chance to reflect either on what is said or what the hearer's decoding mechanism has done. (laughs) 
This is why it's so good to focus in on a particular phrase, a particular part of speech, and analyze it at whatever length it deserves. Uh Is this what uh, attracts you to Bertrand Russell particularly? Indeed. And I, I guess this is also what drew you to the essay by George Orwell, which you mentioned, The Politics in the English Language, where he's calling there for people to be very careful about what they're saying and actually analyse how they're using words. Indeed. Orwell was, was so, so important that way. And so do you feel that the... You mentioned the CIA and their use of this term. Do you feel that it's quite likely that they were completely aware of how a term such as conspiracy theorists could be used in this immediate sense without people reflecting upon what they're hearing at all, but just to react to it. Do you feel that when they, as we've previously said, that they weaponized this term in the 1960s, that that was how they thought, yes, we can use this as a way of getting people to react immediately and therefore to deflect attention from criticism of the Warren report? Oh, I would say it was entirely deliberate. Uh, By the time that Kennedy was executed, and by the way, speaking of language, ever since JFK was killed, I have used the term that he was assassinated, which is the most common term. And yet there's a synonym for assassinated, and the synonym is more applicable, in fact, to the way he was killed than assassinated, and that is executed. Because that really implies that the state was the executioner An assassination could happen, as with Count Ferdinand, by a lone assassin who uh, just got a gun and plugged somebody. But execution implies that there's a a whole structure behind the person being rubbed out. And it's more appropriate, I think, to use the word execution with JFK. And I give that just as a humble example of how I constantly question my own language and hope that it's evolving. So to go back to the CIA, I think it was completely deliberate that the CIA, which even as early as 1948, that's when the Operation Mockingbird began, when when the CIA as an entity realized the importance of the public mind and how important it was to manipulate the public mind and set up a vast program of manipulation um, that the very intelligent people, very intelligent but very immoral people uh, working for the CIA, they came to realize that if you have a particularly powerful phrase, that it is, as you've said, like a weapon. And so they ran across this phrase, conspiracy theorist. As I say, it was first used, according to my research, around 1920 by an American author whose name I forget. And uh, they thought, wow, what a tremendous label to pin on anybody who questions the findings of the Warren Commission. And so we do actually have the documentary proof that the CIA sent out these secret communiques to the people they call their assets in the media to begin to use that term, conspiracy theorist, against anybody who was questioning the findings of the Warren report. And I'm just going to mention, just so that people can access that, that it has a very prosaic reference number, but I'm going to mention it. 1035-960, called Concerning Criticism of the Warren Report. So if people want to go and check that out, that's the number, and you will find it. If you put that into a search engine, it will come up. Exactly. And then that was, as you know, issued by the Psychological Warfare Operations Division, which is known as PSYOPs. 
of the uh, clandestine services department of the CIA. So it's all deliberate. I mean, it would be good if as many people as possible would become aware that their minds, and that includes my mind, and and I dare say yours, if I may speak for you, Julian, can be manipulated, and in fact are being manipulated a good deal of the time. Well, indeed, I was going to admit to that at some point during the interview, uh, that I have an example of that, and that is my general reluctance amongst my friends that I feel myself to talk about issues such as 9-11. Now, I think all sorts of things inside my head and in the podcast here, of course, I'm free to talk with people who think similarly to me. But when it comes to my social interactions in everyday life, that's very different. I tend to clam up about these issues, and I'm aware that that is an influence upon me. Yes, it's an inhibition, but I think that I I wouldn't fault you. I don't know the details. I just have got the general impression from what you just said. I would cut you a lot of slack if you're in a pub or talking with certain relatives. You just decide to stay away from that subject. There's a logic to this, too. When it comes to where and when we will discuss these things that we consider of huge import. It only makes sense that if we have a cousin and we're at at a wedding, you know, of the family and there's a cousin who couldn't possibly handle us or has already said that they consider you or me to be a conspiracy nut, then we just simply decide, well, we don't need to discuss this at this wedding. Or we don't need to discuss this at this wedding with this particular cousin, <laughs> right? And that's a rational choice. But the thing is that the more and more that we don't discuss something, the more situations where we say, well, we better not mention it here, and we better not say it there, then after a while, and Orwell had great insights about this, when we stop talking about something, then we stop thinking about it. Because language is this is the workings of our minds. And if you go long enough not talking about something, you actually forget it yourself. And so you disarm yourself to stick with the weaponization analogy. And and that's a bad thing to do. And that is why, generally, we should be true to ourselves and we should say what we believe, you know, at all possible times. And my life experience, by the way, in regards to 9-11, because so many people have said to me, oh my gosh, you must have suffered terribly from your belief in 9-11. Or they put it as a question, haven't you just had a terrible time and and suffered because you've been outspoken to the effect that 9-11 was an inside job? And my answer is no, I have not suffered. As I said way back at the beginning of this conversation, I don't work for anybody. Nobody can fire me. And I'm past retirement age, and uh, it's well known that people, as they get older, become more outspoken because they have less to lose because they have less long to live. And so what has happened in, in my case is not only have I not suffered, sure, I've suffered some. Yes. I mean, I've lost some friends. Uh, there's one relative I have. I'm very sorry that he has practically cut off communication with me. But the other side of the scale is so much heavier where I've been praised, I've been appreciated, I've been thanked. 
People have said they're grateful that I've spoken out, that it's given them courage to speak out. I've gained wonderful friends, intelligent, thoughtful, critical people, and my life has been made so much richer by my involvement in the 9-11 Truth Movement. Uh I'm so glad that you're saying this because I've only been doing this for about a year and, of course, I've touched on many of these issues. And I have to say that I haven't had, I think it's right to say that I haven't had any emails come my way that are negative on these kinds of issues at all. And yet I was anticipating that somebody would send me sometime an email saying, you know, how dare you talk about 9-11? Maybe I'm tempting fate by saying this. It might yet happen. But, uh, you know, no, I, I agree with you. Even just in this year so far, I've found that that is the case. And as you say, it is somewhat liberating, isn't it, to be actually to speak your mind? It really is liberating. And, and in fact, I think it's necessary for our best mental health. Yes. And, of course, involved is that ancient truism to thine own self be true. We're getting to some fundamental human wisdom here. And if you don't say what you believe and believe what you say, then already you're on you know, on a very slippery slope. Mm. So I, I'm glad that you've had that experience you've had too, because anybody who happens to be listening to us and has uh, walked along the same path where there are fears of what's lurking in the bushes there, I think that if this conversation helps people to become a bit more outspoken, you need to do it intelligently. You know, you choose always where and when and what to say. I mean, it's not that we just blurt things out everywhere. But just generally speaking, we need to continue to question, certainly, the big lie, I call it that, of 9-11. But there's so many other, and we've alluded to this just marginally, so many other areas where there are vast lies promulgated, especially by the mainstream media, about all sorts of really important subjects, historical or current. And we owe it to ourselves and, and really to society at large and, and future generations to speak out whenever we're pretty sure that a vast lie is being spread about. Yes, absolutely. I, I agree with you that this is a, a healthy and necessary thing to happen and to encourage. Yeah. But it has to be said that at the moment, in the last 10 years or so, it's really fashionable, in certainly in academic circles, for research into the phenomenon of conspiracy theorizing, to look at it all from a psychological, sociological point of view, and kind of to suggest that it's unhealthy. It's something that needs to be discouraged. I mean, that's certainly the the feeling I get through reading some of these things. I mean, indeed, recently in the UK here, we had the announcement of a new project at the University of Cambridge called Conspiracy and Democracy, which is asking the question, does democracy, that is, uh, governments becoming more open, is that leading to people developing conspiracy theories and therefore threatening democracy because of that? And then, of course, there are all these psychological studies that are done where there are papers saying, well, people have all sorts of strange psychological psychological motivations for believing in various conspiracy theories. So the whole feeling of that is that there's something unhealthy about thinking about such theories, which, as you've been saying, and I agree with you, that seems to me to be completely false. It seems to me to be a healthy thing that we should think about these things. Um, So what I want to ask you about here is, do you agree that this academic concentration on conspiracy theorizing as a phenomenon to be put under the microscope, so to speak. Do you think that in itself reinforces the impression amongst people that there is something irrational or like a disease that needs to be investigated and cut out almost like a a surgeon? Oh, uh, absolutely, Julian. Absolutely. I have a number of books 
allegedly, I would say, academic, which engage in this over-psychologization of those of us who question. I might even end the sentence there, those who question. It's a deep question, as a matter of fact, about why some of us seem to have learned or have innately come to the point where we question everything. And um, we may be able to use just a little spot of humor here. Um, Someone recently sent me a cartoon. And in this cartoon, there's a professor standing at the front of a class beside his lectern. And he has written in large capitals on the blackboard, question authority. And in the front row, one of his students is saying, According to who? <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, yes. <laughs> so it shows there's a bit of a conundrum here. But in any event, it's standard practice, not only in these books and also in thousands of articles. I actually analyzed all the major articles about 9-11 over about a 13-month period for the late lamented periodical global outlook. And there's a distinct pattern to the articles, and they always over-psychologize. They generalize about conspiracy theories, uh, either without settling on a proper definition, which can be done, as we said at the outset, normatively, or they bring in a disparate spectrum of these so-called conspiracy theories which we also uh, referenced earlier, such as Elvis is still alive. And then they home in on the politically sensitive ones, such as 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. And then these articles, therefore, undermine questioning about those history-changing false flag events, especially. And uh, the execution of JFK... Uh, was actually a coup. It was a military, probably military, industrial, uh, financial coup, which changed the direction of the governance of the United States of America at that time. And these are the crown jewels, if you will, of what I call the diaboligarchy, those unduly powerful, unduly wealthy, unduly privileged allegedly highest echelons of society that uh, have a lot more power than than the rest of us. And uh, they want to undermine questioning of these history-changing events. And then they use these people writing in academic terms and uh, the whole subject of conspiracy to do it. And they deal with conspiracy in a way that befuddles people and that demonizes those who question. And it's almost as if uh, it's not really necessary that the substance of all that research is bad in any way. I mean, it, there could be a great deal in that research that are actually useful and interesting. But what concerns me is the very concentration upon it sort of sets the scene that, oh, well, this must be something that's bad, just because there's so much concentration upon that issue. Indeed. And, and we have a, an example here in Canada, a journalist, a, a very right-wing journalist, named Jonathan Kay, um, who writes for the most right-wing national daily, the National Post. And he's written a book called Among the Truthers. And his book, and I've debated him on TV, his book is really a case study of this kind of book, because his title is one among all too many. 
And um, he has a number of rather brilliant propaganda techniques that he uses. And one of them is that he will say, well, you know, these people, and he, he writes about me, among others, by name, you know, in the book. So he says, these people, you know, they're often well-meaning. I mean, that, that is, that is, that is <laughs> so, <laughs> condescending, so condescending. And then another way he has of condescending and of sort of evading kind of intellectual justice, he'll say, you know, there's a grain of truth sometimes to what they say. What a sneaky <laughs> phrase, <laughs> honest to goodness. So these uh, books are worthy of being deconstructed. They need to be deconstructed. But those who uh, write them, they're very slippery characters. They really are. I probably have a half a dozen of these books, but they follow a pattern. That's an interesting thing. They do follow a pattern. They are very shy on evidence. And of course, this is where Bertrand Russell is so, so germane. Hmm. He always demands evidence. And he was willing to change his opinion on a subject, more or less in a flash, uh, once he encountered some new evidence that showed him that his previous understanding was mistaken. So that's why, to me, he's a model that once we encounter some evidence that really questions a basic belief we have, especially, never mind our minor beliefs, then we should be ready. We should welcome this evidence with open arms. And uh, we should say, whoa, that just really makes me think again about this whole matter. So it's not a sign of weakness to be willing to be flexible and to change one's mind. But I don't really think this is pretty obvious. I, th I guess you've already touched upon this, but I do want to ask you more formally about this. What should our response be when we're accused of being uh, a conspiracy theorist? Now, I've got a couple of things that I want to ask you about this. Um, the first thing is, should we, do you think, modify our language, perhaps, to avoid various verbal triggers that could lead to our being accused of a conspiracy theorist? For example, I'm just thinking of, you said it a couple of times, we may believe that 9-11 was an inside job. Well, between you and I speaking about that, that's absolutely fine. But let's say down the pub, as you said earlier, should we avoid using terms like that? And I'm thinking of, uh, for example, Peter Dale Scott uses different terms like deep politics and deep state, and other people talk about uh, SCADs or state crimes against democracy. Do you think it's a, a wise strategy to use different language? Well, it can be, uh, but it wouldn't necessarily be. And hmm. I, I don't mean to be uh, weaselly there, but a couple of things spring to mind. One is my own personal experience, because I've been a truther, and I, I wear that label proudly, from the very day of 9-11. By noon that day, I was convinced that something was very fishy. So I've had, I've had all these, these years to be a declared 9-11 truther. And what I've found is that I've encountered the charge or the put-down that I'm just a conspiracy theorist. Usually, it's been put to me this way, with these exact words, oh, you're not one of those conspiracy theorists, are you? And sometimes it's not put in a mean way. It's a genuine question. But it's like a, a stone inside a snowball. When it hits you, it hurts. It makes a bump on your head. But as you said before, does it depend upon how it's said? It, oh, very you much. said it quite neutrally there, but it could be. Oh, don't tell me you're one of those conspiracy nuts. <laughs> but, exactly. The tone, that's not only an adjunct 
to language. It's central to language, as is body language that goes with it. That's when I mentioned the eye rolling. So a person could say, oh, yeah. you're not one of those conspiracy theorists, are you? And that in the tone would be more or less an interrogative. But then if they roll their eyes at the same time, <laughs> well, then they've added this body language, which shows how they feel about the term and how they feel about you. So anyway, I've encountered it in the various forms from various people in various situations. And I've been able to market test my responses and my own preferred mode of dealing with it is fairly aggressive. And what I usually say is just stop right there. Let's look at this term you just used. And then I proceed to deconstruct it and I try to, uh, you know, lower the temperature after my initial <laughs> holding up with this big stop sign. <laughs> so I actually act as a thought stopper uh-huh. of the person who's trying to stop my thought. But you, you do, in fact, own the term conspiracy theorist if somebody uses that. Yes. Yes. I think so. Mm. And so then uh, I proceed in a way that doesn't involve many pauses so that the person who's receiving my response doesn't have that much a chance to break in. (laughs) So I, I say, look, that is a very fraught term. That is, in fact, a put down term, if you want to think of it that way and consider the way you said it. And let's look at that term. And I just go into my little lecture that I gave at the outset of our conversation here. And that really changes the conversation. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I think we have to be a bit muscular normally. I think what you said there very much fits with the kind of thing that I think that Charles Pigden is doing, the philosopher from New Zealand who wrote a very famous essay about conspiracy theories. And it was only on the 22nd of October this year at Cambridge University that he gave a lecture, um, which he called, If You're Not a Conspiracy Theorist, then you are an idiot. <laughs> yeah. um, and I said that I would do this before the interview, but I do want to just read his little description here, where he is clearly owning the term conspiracy theorist, not just for himself, but saying everybody is a conspiracy theorist if you're rational. This is what he says about it. A, a conspiracy theory is a theory that explains some event or events as due in part to a conspiracy, that is, to a secret plan to influence events by partly secret means. B, Every historically and politically literate person employs the strategy of sometimes believing, and sometimes being prepared to believe, conspiracy theories. C. Every historically and politically literate person is a conspiracy theorist. D. The only way not to be a conspiracy theorist is to be historically and politically illiterate, that is to be, in the Greek sense of the word, an idiot. F. Therefore, if you are not a conspiracy theorist, then you are an idiot. And it ends with this. The lecture will be followed by a wine reception. <laughs> I just thought that was a lovely poster to have there. I imagine it there on the, the, the wall of a Cambridge college, you know. Well, when, when you were reading that, I just thought, I love it. I love what he said, and uh, I uh, endorse it. I second the motion. I applaud him, and, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll look him up. How do you spell his name? It's P-I-G-D-E-N. P-I-G-D-E-N. And the first name? Charles. That's all I need. So this is uh, very important what he's saying. And you might say that he's doing there, in a very intelligent way, what I suggested uh, less intelligently, to be a bit aggressive on it. You can't let people get away with it. You just have to say, hold it right there. And those are the very words I use. 
Yes, and that does seem to be, as you say, a much more muscular approach. I mean, I'm, sometimes I do hear people say things like, uh, you know, they're accused of it, and then they say, yes, but I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I just think so-and-so. And I just feel by doing that, they've sort of delegitimized themselves in some way. If only they were to own up and say, well, yes, of course, everybody's a conspiracy theorist. That would be a, a much more positive approach by saying well, no, I'm not that, is almost to have admitted to a failure in some way. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I absolutely do know what you mean. And uh, it used to be, during Mm. the Cold War at least, the worst thing you could be was a communist or a commie. So that people who had a left-wing idea and they knew that it would be called communist, this went on for decades during my life, they would precede their exposition of the idea by saying, well, I'm not a communist, but... (laughs) (laughs) And, And so there's a kind of a parallel. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do have some questions about <laughs> fill in the blank. Yeah. So it's almost a necessary rider that people feel that they must add so that they won't be immediately dismissed. But of course they will be. And that's how it works then, isn't it? Because by saying, well, I'm not that, people immediately think, "Ah, oh, well, you are really, but you're not saying so. So you've given in straight away to the definition. Well, that's right. I mean, there's double trouble there. First of all, you won't be believed. It well may be that you're not believed. And secondly, in the course of trying to be believed by saying that you're not a conspiracy theorist, you're actually adding to the power of this terrible phrase. So by owning it, as you say, you know, there's quite a history of this in language. Um, The muckrakers are fairly well known, this marvelous tribe, if you will, of journalists in the 1920s, Ida Tarbell and Lincoln Steffens and Upton Sinclair and so on, in this golden age of journalism in the USA. They mainly wrote for McClure's magazine, and they would be given up to two years to write an article. And they had a huge impact. I mean, they they uncovered the wrongdoing in the meat industry and changed that completely. And then places where children were, where child labor was employed, and they did these takeouts, as we call them in journalism. And so Teddy Roosevelt, who was otherwise pretty admirable, they were making life uncomfortable for him even though their writing led to the antitrust legislation that Teddy Roosevelt brought in. And so he tried to demean them by quoting from the Bible. And in the Bible, there was a term of muckrakers, people who just got down in the mud and mucked about in it. And these these people very wisely said, yes, we are muckrakers, and we're proud of it. And after that, they always called themselves muckrakers, and they changed the meaning of the word entirely so that it became a positive. I'd like to end by asking you about what's coming up, of course, in the next few days, and that's going to be, as everybody is anticipating here, I'm going to say the 50th anniversary of the, well, I was going to say the assassination, but I'm I'm now going to say the execution of John F. Kennedy. And we know that the media is going to have an absolute field day with this. So what I want to ask you here is that, given the fact that we know that a very large proportion of the world's population believes that the lone gunman theory is obviously false, thanks, I suppose, in no small measure to Oliver Stone's film. Do you think that the mainstream media is going to continue its policy of calling all doubters conspiracy theorists? Or do you think that they, they realise at long last that the game is up and they have to change on this? Well, I don't have much hope as a person who's been in journalism and communications all his life. 
that the mainstream media are going to change, that that leopard is going to change its spots because it is so corrupted and to a great extent, I must say, infiltrated by gatekeepers who are in the pay of the likes of the CIA, that this is a dangerous behemoth that isn't going to change easily or or let alone overnight. But to some extent, they're undermining themselves in part by the obvious lies they're telling. The lies become obvious when someone, especially through the internet, which is why it's in such danger, I would say, encounter counterfactual explanations for certain things. And then people begin to look at the mainstream media, you know, the Johnny One Note tune that they're singing, then people begin to see, well, wait a minute, that's just one explanation. There are others. But it's very complicated, I would say. For instance, not only will most of the media, I fear, and I'd love to be wrong in this prediction, stick to the line that it was a lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, who did the terrible deed. They will confuse the issue with alternative conspiracy theories. And uh, one of the most ridiculous ones that I've encountered lately, and I only encountered it in the form of a column by the television columnist for the Globe Mail newspaper writing about it. And I think it's about to be aired. Maybe it has just been aired, but I, I could hardly bear to watch it. I'm not sure if it's yet coming that, that I'll even be able to bear to watch it. But the book was written by an Australian, I forget his name, claiming that the way Kennedy was killed, and this is a nonfiction book, was because of the accidental discharge of the revolver of one of the Secret Service agents who was in Dallas that day. (laughs) I kid you not. So someone has made a documentary based on the book, and this is actually going to be aired. I mean, I'm almost tempted to use very, very bad words that you would have to remove with a beep here. (laughs) So this is the kind of nonsense, this kind of deliberate confusion and muddying of the waters that we can expect along with the straight out lies and they'll be going non-stop as we approach they'll drag out all these documentaries and uh, they'll they'll be aired on all channels as a matter of fact there was one on cbc the other night and i didn't even try to record it i i looked at a bit of it and i saw a guy who has written what was it, the official biography of J. Edgar Hoover? Yeah. So here's a guy who's written the official biography of J. Edgar Hoover. They're giving him a lot of face time to talk about the Kennedy assassination. And I I just turned off the TV. I couldn't bear it. Well, I can understand the frustration because the effect of this with all these strange ideas coming out and being promoted is going to be that a lot of people will think, oh, well, nobody really knows what happened. Uh, Why bother to think about it? Perhaps I should just accept the official line. That's obviously the most rational thing to do. I would have thought that that would be one of the effects of this. And an intended effect, an intended effect. It's like the, and I see we're on the phone here for long enough that you may be facing an editing problem, but it's like the campaign that was, and still is to some extent, the campaign that was launched by the tobacco companies to confuse people about whether tobacco is dangerous to your health. And they were able to, starting even in the 1930s, they were able to confuse people on this subject to launch allegedly scientific studies 
of tobacco, which showed that it wasn't harmful. And of course, there were advertisements, I can still remember them, I'm old enough to remember them, uh, showing medical doctors smoking <laughs> in an advertisement. I smoke Lucky Strike, Strike says this medical doctor, you know. <laughs> and then and whenever new information which was reliable, which was reached at by proper scientific investigation, came out to show that smoking was implicated in cancer, they couldn't prove the direct link for quite a long time. Well, then the propaganda said, well, there's no direct link. This is a claim they're making, but there's no direct link. And then the direct link was shown, and then they, then they switched again. They always, always had something going for them by way of a campaign, first of all, of lies and to prevent the truth coming out. And secondly, which is still a pretty good outcome if you want to sell cigarettes, of confusing people. Just as you have said, uh, Julian, where people say, well, gosh, I don't know. These people are saying this. Those people are saying that. So I don't really know what to think. So I think I'll keep on smoking because it really feels good. <laughs> yes, and indeed, what you've just spoken of there—it it was a conspiracy. Oh, it was definitely <laughs> exactly. a conspiracy. Yes. Oh, yeah. But it's easier for people to believe that because, of course, it wasn't the government doing it, and that's a very interesting fact in itself. That as soon as it involves government, then this term conspiracy theorist seems to come out of the bag at that point. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, as you say, we have been talking for quite a long time, actually, so I'm, I'm, I'm very, very grateful to you for all this time that you spent with us. You're quite right. I will have to do some editing, but um, I've, I've got used to doing that over the months. So may I say to you, Barry Zwicker, thank you ever so much indeed for joining us on the podcast. It's been a fascinating conversation. Well, I thank you for inviting me, and uh, I, I would be willing to join you again if you uh, are short of a guest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not at all. No, no, I, I, that would be fantastic, because one thing I would like to ask you about in the future is specifically about your concerns you know what it was that drove you to be concerned about 9-11 as you say right from the beginning and your studies into that subject thereafter that would be fascinating well I'm open and willing and we got a good telephone line so if you should call I'll take your call <laughs> and and thank you for the opportunity Julian marvelous thank you ever so much for being with us okay bye now <laughs>